interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hi, I'm Chucky. Wanna play? You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare. Be afraid. No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Ghouls and gore. And sometimes a little more. My bloody podcast. <laughs> Welcome everyone to the interview show part of My Bloody Podcast. I'm Brian Kluger. We're here in Dallas, Texas under this lockdown in day 3084. And I'm joined by the man I walk with in the hazmat suit in life, in the mask. Mark Chafferdini, how's it going, man? Man, I will take a walkabout with you any day of the week. Hazmat or not. Oh, excellent. I like it. Uh, we have an excellent, fantastic guest on the show today. This is the, the legend, the, the maestro of filmmaking, Justin Kurzel, all the way from Australia, where it's already a day ahead. He's already ahead of the whole game right now. We're so excited to have him. We're going to be talking about his new film that will be out very soon, True History of the Kelly Gang along with his other movies, but we're just so happy to have you. Justin, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. Um, I'm very fortunate. I'm sort of right down the bottom of the earth in a little little place, uh, in a pretty nice place to be. Excellent, excellent. So, you know, I want to start out with, um, where did it all begin for you in film? Like, do you remember like the, the first moment that spark that lit up your creative mind was like, yes, I'm doing this movie. And how did you get into it? Uh, well, Jaws was the first film, which I thought sort of transcended anything in regards to, I still can't get into the water um, without getting that soundtrack out of my head. And, you know, sort of getting some of those kind of shots from Spielberg, especially below uh, looking up to the surface. Um, it, it was probably the first time that I, uh, just realized the sort of uh, visceral power of film and and um, it's that 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 film is still a favorite of mine I still haven't shown my kids even though they're desperate to see it because I still want them to enjoy the water um, so that was that was probably the first time I'd sort of gone into the black box and come out really kind of changed and um, uh, and then I just started filmmaking because my brother started a band and, and I was the bass player in it and got really bored playing the bass and they then became a two-piece and I said, well, can I sort of direct your music clips? And and I started directing these music clips and they were for no one and they, the band were really loose and I, I started kind of investigating sort of actually practically doing film through that. So I had a pretty unconventional kind of road into it all. That's cool. Do you, do you still play bass? No, no. I, I was pretty bad at it. I, I, I couldn't get my hand around the fourth string, so I only played three strings. I worked out how to do it with three strings or I'd have to sit down to play it. Um, so I've got a lot of a love for bass players. I think they're pretty fantastic and I don't think they get enough credit, but I was, um, yeah, I, I wasn't the best bass player. And actually I thought the band would split up. Uh, after I said I was leaving, but they, they actually flourished onto, onto becoming really popular and really great just with two people. So uh, but you could yeah, probably but, say they rose to popularity because of your awesome uh, music videos for them. Yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I want to I wanna ask, um, 
you kind of have, you know, in your, you know, what seems like 15 to 20 years in the film business, uh, you kind of have this Kubrickian, the Stanley Kubrickian nature where you pick films that are different time periods, different genres. Uh, and I think that is like, so crazy cool. Is that is that kind of how you like to pick your projects? Do you like that aspect of doing something different each film? Kind of like from uh, Shakespeare, Shakespeare to modern day video game to this uh, historical Australian uh, person in the gang. What what's kind of your process and when you pick these different periods and different uh, genres? Is that is that into your mind? Yeah, I wish it was more curated and kind of like auteured, but it's really not. It, it I'm not. I don't write my work. I, I do work really closely with a lot of writers, but I. It's all for me. It's always been what is the scariest proposition. You know, it's 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 always been kind of what 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 do I know? I'll be on set and I'll be sort of petrified, and that's usually what I what I do with Snowtown. It was serial killings that happened in my neighborhood working with non-actors like i usually try to put up some obstacles and that that project really scared uh the life out of me and 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 i was very unsure about making it but usually when i get to that place where i'm where i'm not going to do something i do it so you know macbeth was like you know doing a doing Macbeth in the UK, um, however many productions have been sort of done of it, the, the kind of baggage and weight of that. Assassin's Creed was the video game, kind of trying to kind of form that into a film. And then this one was about Ned Kelly, which you're on a highway to hell a little bit in Australia doing a film about Ned Kelly, because all of them kind of haven't in the eyes of the public succeeded. And, and uh, you know, there is a little bit knives out with doing a film about him here. So. I don't know why, but I, I, I guess I kind of like the belting a bit. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Macbeth because I, I can tell you, I don't think I've seen a stylistic, uh, amazing and captivating film like yours in a while. I mean, from frame one, especially to what you did with the end credits, you made it your own. It had this ima uh, imaginary and um, nebulous Shakespearean quality. So what did you, aside from Ned's point of view, what was the most important thing that you wanted to put on screen and kind of make it your own. Well, is that for true history of the Kelly gang? Yes. Um, well, I was coming off Assassin's Creed and I was really wanting to do something really kind of personal. Um, and a real kind of bit of a scream and a bit of an investigation as to kind of, kind of, as to kind of why Nick Kelly is our sort of mythical legend in Australia. And, and uh, for some reason, he is. He, he seems to sort of be on our conscience, our, our conscience for, for for quite a long time. And and so I, I was, I was really interested in sort of blowing that up a little bit, and and sort of really trying to kind of understand why we, especially in Australia, create myths and legends and want to sort of live by them and somehow get answers about who we are and who our country is. So uh, it, it it was a sort of it was an anti-film in a way, if, if you sort of know what I mean. Like it was, it was uh, every single decision that we made on that. I was like, okay, well, let's push it. Let's, let's move it um, even further away from kind of, I guess, what has been done before or the perception of Nick Kelly before. Um, I didn't want it to be a pastiche period piece where you're worried about the, you know, the wagon wheels and the color of the buttons. It was, it was more about kind of how to, how to make these, this period film feel a little bit more familiar and modern.
And, and, and to that respect, you know, you work with your brother a lot who provided the score and that was a very unconventional score. It wasn't symphonic. It was, you know, scratchings and woodwinds and things like that. So you really made this film your own, which I thought was, you know, the, the, the neon lights at the end and the aerial shots and the, um, the sort of strobe lights on the train. It was all just, you know, as captivating as a story. So I, I, there's not a frame that I couldn't fall in love with. Oh, thanks, man. Cheers. You, know, you, you work with family a lot. So you work with your wife, you work with your, your brother. How, how is that dynamic in shorthand uh, over different films and leading now to the Ned Kelly story? It's pretty fantastic. I mean, you know, well, Jeb was my the the, the original um, lead, you know, lead singer, and the one who formed the band when I was, you know, back making video clips for him and the band. So, and then when I kind of had my first film, I knew he had a few things kind of lying around that weren't sort of your traditional kind of songs, and and they were more sort of cinematic, and and said, "Well, do you want to have a go at doing this?" And he'd never done it before, and it was just very organic. Like we talk constantly and most of the time we're talking about ideas or thoughts or creative things. And it's the same with Essie, my wife, where, where, where usually our good spot is when we're creatively involved in something. So it's never, it never, it's never felt strange or weird. Uh, apart from the day that I had to uh, direct my wife giving fellatio to Charlie Hunnam on the first day, that, that was a little weird. That was a little strange. No, it was. It was. It was strange. I so when that scene happens in the first couple minutes of the movie, my mind went to that right there. I was like, "Whoa, what?" Yeah, what is? That's the what is it's surprising. Yeah, it's surprising how much of an effect it has on me. I was like, "I'm a pretty." I'm a pretty kind of you know pretty open guy, and uh, I I was sort of you know, and it was me. I sort of helped write the scene with Sean the writer, so. I got no one else to blame but me. But, you know, you sort of feel for the actors. Both of them are just so nervous. Like Charlie had just arrived in Australia and he was met Essie for the first time and then suddenly she's on her knees and, you know, Essie was talking about going to buy a dildo so she at least had something that she could look at rather than, you know. So, you know, you're having these very strange conversations, you know, with the people that you're working with. But, you know, at the end of the day, it is your wife that, you know, in front of you with a very, very handsome, attractive man. Um, so that, just for a split second, my mind did go sort of uh, somewhere else. But yeah, I was able to kind of um, get get caught up in the story and the characters they were playing. That's great. That takes a lot of guts and a lot of balls to do that. And I'm just, I, I think like, oh, what, 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 what was the conversation at lunch and dinner? <laughs> yeah, there's lots of, I think there's lots of laughing. Yeah. nothing in there and that's all you that, that's that's all you can do and um you know i was i was pretty lucky those two are pretty fantastic people and right. and and wonderful and i think they sort of saw the the humor and the absurdity in it a little bit and I, i'm curious because you have an all-star cast in this film you know including essie who we love and the babadook and all of her other films but this movie is kind of like a like a legend in Australia. So I imagine all these people who came across the script and came aboard were just really excited to be a part of this film of like kind of history told uh, in this unique perspective. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, everybody coming on board to this project and how excited they were? Yeah, I was really lucky. I mean, I was, I was quite surprised that, you know, at the end of the day, if you've got a good script and, 
and it's got a particular angle and bent on it. I, and, and even if the characters are support characters, you know, because most of those sort of, I guess, more high profile actors in the film are all support roles that, you know, they're only on screen 15, 20 minutes. It was just a fantastic sort of example of, you know, people will respond to great writing, great characters, no matter what sort of budget, no matter what kind of, you know, uh, largeness they are in, in, in the film. So it really can't stem from Peter Carey's book. I mean, it's a really large book on the drive. It's, it's, it's um, you know, it's known for it's such, it's, it's such different take on Ned Kelly. And, um, you know, and then I think it was just sort of, you know, the combination of sort of doing it in the Australian outback and, and uh, playing, you know, such kind of, especially the, the bad characters, such kind of delicious, you know, terribly awful characters that you know most actors really love doing because you know they don't have a lead role resting on their shoulders where the whole film has to work because of them when they can kind of come in and you know play with a with a really you know dark badass kind of character it's usually a lot of fun and you know and then they can kind of get out and it's not sort of resting on them so you know probably the one that that was really really important to us was russell you know he he, he really if Russell wasn't involved I think the film would have been really hard to get made and and he stayed with it because it fell over about two or three times and he stayed with it he was incredibly loyal Russell he's a man man of his words so we're, we're very fortunate to, to have his kind of um, you know his sort of mentoring but also his kind of presence uh, you know throughout the whole kind of process Right. I, I love seeing him act with the, the younger Ned uh, and, you know, convincing him what to do. I thought, was, I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, it's interesting. I was talking to the writer the other, yesterday, actually, and we were, we were kind of joking about wouldn't it be fantastic to kind of just do a whole series or, you know, film of, of, of Harry Power, Russell's character with little Ned and, Yes. Um, because you, you know, even though it couldn't really exist in our film, there, there is a kind of, there's a, there's a fantastic uh, world there. Um, and I think it's unusual, you know, I think what was really lovely about Russell in the role is that, you know, he comes on screen and you kind of feel the legend of Harry Powell and it's Russell and everything that sort of the, the gravitas that comes with him. Um, but then you kind of really start to, 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 to realise very quickly that actually Russell's sort of character, Harry Power, needs little Ned more than, you know, Ned needs him. And, and there's a kind of lovely vulnerability to Russell's performance in it, which, um, you know, which, which, which was really different, I think, and, and, you know, really interesting what he did. And his impact was, was felt, even though he was not in the film for a significant portion of the runtime, you know, the impact he had on young Ned and what he um, helped influence him was kind of immeasurable, but there were certain things that just kind of spoke to me. Like he, um, he, he wrote the song, didn't he? He wrote the constable song. Yeah, we, I was, um, <laughs> well, you know, like Russell's really musical. Like you go and visit him and there's just music going on everywhere, his own, other people's. And, you know, it, I think it is really one of the biggest loves of his life is, is, is music. So, you know, it just seemed kind of crazy for us not to kind of em em embrace that and, and use that as much as possible. So we created a kind of song for him that was originally based on a sort of bawdy Australian kind of singer here. 
Um, and Russell sort of saw it and went, yeah, I reckon I could probably do better than that. And, and he did. <laughs> and, he came, and he just spent all this time kind of coming up with this just awesome song that, that you know, actually then changed, changed the ending, you know, in regards to the way uh, older Ned sort of faces off with uh, Fitzpatrick that, that Nicole plays and, and repeats the song uh, to him. So that was really lovely. You know, it's really great when actors sort of bring ideas there that, that really do shift and change and shape a script and a character's journey. And, and I find that happens a lot. You know, some of the best ideas you're sitting there at an opening and you're watching your film and you go, oh my God, that's such a great idea. And you think back how it happened. And it's usually the actor. It's, it's usually, you know, either in pre or, or on the day they've, they've come up with something kind of just so unique to them that just works and is truthful, you know? Well, going back to what you said, uh, I, I keep going back to the Shakespearean quality, but there was something that um, Russell said to Ezzy. He goes, um, Helen, I, I always have appetites. I've just grown accustomed to being denied the satisfaction of them. And I thought that was so beautiful and poetic and, again, Shakespearean. So, you know, Russell is Russell. So who can we credit for that, uh, that wonderful phrase? Is that, you or that, that was Sean Grant. That was Sean Grant and um, Peter Carey. Yeah, Actually, okay. I think it might have been. I think that that's absolutely sounds like a Peter Carey line um, from from the book. So, yeah, no, um, there was some really there was some Russell came up with some really beautiful little lines, but they they are Shakespearean. They are, and it's really interesting. Like when you suddenly have an actor with such gravitas as Russell, with a voice like Russell, it's so interesting how. Sometimes you'll have lines in a film that you just go, oh my God, they're so big. They're so Shakespearean. But if you, if you can place them right and you've got the right actor with them, they, they, they never feel kind of over the top and they never feel kind of too, too much. And, and there, is that, there is that amazing thing when you've got something on a page that you think, God, this line, how the hell is this actor going to do this line? Because it's just it's too much. It's too Shakespearean. And it's incredible how, you know, the real skill of some of those actors like Russell can just sort of um, ground them, you know, and, and, and make them feel authentic and honest and, you know, and, and real, you know, so it's, that, that's such a skill. Awesome. Uh, going with true history of, uh, of the Kelly gang, what type of research did you do? Did you get to discuss some of the historical uh, things through Ned's life and the gang's life uh, with historians or any descendants or anything like that? Or was it just strictly reading the, the book that it was based on and talking with a lot of people? Yeah, look, I mean, fortunately, there's just so much, so much written about Ned in Australia and there's been so many books. So, you know, and I remember as a kid growing up, I mean, you would, you would have Ned Kelly pies and you'd go to the museum to sort of see his armour and, you know, he was a real, uh, he was a real kind of figure in our, in our kind of youth. And so I, I knew quite a lot anyway, um, but a lot of it was, a lot of it was, okay, well, here's the book and it's told through the point of view of Nick Kelly. So, you know, it's fictional, <clears throat> you know, it's based on certain things, but that's what really excited me is the fact that, you know, sometimes fiction can be more truthful than fact. You know, sometimes if you're able to actually bring to life a character and give them a voice, that it's not just observations of this happened, this happened, this happened, you know, which a lot of historical biopics feel like. But if you can actually kind of create a voice for that character that, 
you know, that, that connects, that feels human, that kind of feels almost familiar and modern, then, then you almost get more truth out of it because you kind of can feel it. So that the book was the big kind of inspiration more than, more than anything else. And, 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 you know, I've sort of forgot, forgot to say before, you know, I think a huge part of it was the idea of a, of, of a man's history being stolen. That was really interesting that you can live a life and when you die, you know, your, your, your carcass is kind of there for any author to sort of take and change and shift. I mean, we're guilty of it as well. We're, we're making, you know, another Ned Kelly film, putting him in a dress, you know, completely switching and changing kind of history. And I think that that, that, that is you know that that is you know something fascinating and and in australia it's interesting because Nettie carnival you know he kind of he kind of means so much to so many people good and bad and you know at the end of the day he's a 24 year old kid you know who was a bush ranger who kind of you know lived you know whatever life but you know kind of very quickly became probably the most famous person in australia what what was it like working with kids because um it's it's difficult, I imagine, to have some you know some dialogue over their heads or you know the the impact of what's happening. You know, young Ned's covered in blood. I mean, how how did they react to some of these scenes, and how did you how did you shape their uh, their perspective as to what you were doing? It's really tricky. It was the first time, usually with kids, <clears throat> you know, you're choosing kids to be themselves in a bit in in a way. You know, you're choosing them. You know, I I I hadn't worked really strongly with a child lead you know in my all my all my other films they were sort of support roles so you can kind of get away a little bit with um with with them being an extension of themselves with ollie who, who played the young Ned kelly he's you know you can't do that you can't trick a kid and you know and in australia there's really sort of tight child welfare laws on with with films so you know to, to the point where you know if someone is lying in blood on a table in a scene you know sometimes you can't show that or you've got to kind of say to that child actor well they're that person's sleeping instead of they're dead you know so there's a lot of kind of um there's a lot of really really uh challenging um kind of obstacles and hurdles in being able to sort of talk to a child about truthfully what's happening in the scene i was really lucky with orlando he was you know, he was 12 when we shot it, but he wanted to know everything. You know, he, we would pretend that Ray Kelly was on the table after being beaten up by Sergeant O'Neill, you know, that he was sleeping. Um, and Orlando would walk in straight away and go, oh, right, so he's dead. You know, so it's, it really does depend on the maturity of the kid. And I just suddenly saw, you know, he's a freak. You, you, when you see a little kid that just wants to act and gets it, like he's looking around at Charlie Hunnam preparing for a scene, you know, three minutes before he goes on, he, Charlie's alone, he's sitting on a, on a tree log out in the middle of the landscape, he's thinking about things emotionally, what do I want to be to get in there? And then suddenly I turn around and Ollie's doing the same thing. You know, it's that, that kind of curiosity, you know, in something that you love at such a young age, that's pretty extraordinary. And, and I, I, was, um, I was able to work with him like I was able to work with the adult actors. I, would, I was able to have very, very, you know, um, guarded but, but very honest conversations with him about the emotions in the film and the character that he was playing. And, and a lot of that was coming from him, asking questions, wanting to be sort of involved. So I, I, 
I truly believe that you've got to be lucky and you've got to cast really well and you've got to find that kid that just wants to be an actor. You know, you're not tricking them. They actually want to understand what they're doing. And it, it can happen. Like, it's incredible. They're, they're, and, and, they're, and they don't have too much fuzz in front of them that gets in the way of emotionally being kind of very simple and real in a scene. They, they, they don't think too much about it, they, but they want to understand what the process is. So, yeah, so I was just very lucky with Orlando. Excellent. Yeah, he really commands the screen, especially in that one scene where he's trying to pull the trigger and he couldn't and just, you know, the emotions that he's dealing with. So amazing. Yeah, yeah thank you. Um, here's a, here's a fun question for you. Obviously just, uh, you know, you're a huge proponent for cinema and motion pictures and all of that. Uh, what certain scenes from movies always stick with you that, you know, that, you know, drive you to make movies that stuck with you from when you were little growing up, you know, you mentioned Jaws earlier. So I know that scene in Jaws, just, you know, the very beginning of the, young lady in the ocean and then her being dragged around. But is there any other particular scenes for you that stick out to you uh, in cinema that you love? I think there's scenes where you forget you're in the room, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of like, you forget, you forget you're in the room watching a film. Like it, it, you're, you're completely and utterly emotionally given over to, to, to a scene. And usually that comes when you're surprised or shocked or, um, <clears throat> have no idea what's coming, no idea what's coming. So I, I'm thinking about sort of significant moments. Like I, you know, there, there are particular sections in the Rocky films, especially the first one that um, I've never, and, and another film that I used to watch religiously was Hoosiers um, with Gene Hackman yeah. uh, about the little basketball town. And there are, there are sections of that film that are just, adrenaline running like you you know same with rocky that you you just want to be in the film <laughs> you want to be you, you literally want to get into the film and kind of like be in the ring and you're feeling adrenaline through you and i i love feeling that in 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 films so i'm a big fan of a lot of sports films and and i'm really curious as to kind of how that happens and then there are other films where i'm just shocked by a scene you know i remember there was i remember watching funny games the Haneke film and the moment where one of those serial killers is shot you know after kind of meeting uh this hideous sort of torture on this family is kind of shot and that character then suddenly gets up because you're celebrating his death and takes the remote control and kind of rewinds the screen back to the moment before he's shot and then takes the gun off the woman. And I just, I just remember being, I just remember watching that and being so kind of like terrified by the fact that it happened, but shocked at the fact that Haneke could do that, you know, that, that he could deny an audience that kind of moment of justice, that, that he could kind of break a convention where the character actually looks at you, you know, and you become complicit in the, in, in the scene. And, I think, I think it's those moments where you're just sort of shocked in many ways. And it can be through humour, um, but you, you have no idea what's sort of coming next. So I guess they're two kind of, well, three, if you think about Jaws. That was the other thing. Like, I remember Alien when that thing came out of William Hurt's body, you know. It was just like, 
you know, and I don't, and I don't necessarily think it's got to do with makeup and effects and kind of how it has all been shot. There's a zeitgeist to those moments. You know, there's a kind of, there's something that, that is deeper um, and, and that, that connects to our greatest fears that, that um, seems to kind of, uh, I think, elevate some of those kind of moments rather than just the mechanics of it. Right on. I like those answers. Uh, I, I, you know, I felt really encapsulated in the moment in true history of the Kelly gang, a uh, particular scene of when Russell Crowe and the young Ned come across the two uh, people on the horses in the carriage. And that scene, like, fully, I was like, oh my goodness, something is about to happen. And then just, you know, kind of the silence of it all. And then when it all happens, that was perfectly executed. No, all the pun intended. <laughs> well, I got I to gotta tell you about that scene. We, we, that, that scene was only half shot because we went up and, and uh, we were in the snow with the carriage and the horses and um, they got stuck and we could not move them. So we actually couldn't get them to, to the... Um, to, to, to Ned and Russell. So, and we lost half a day of kind of shooting. So that, that was literally that scene was, this is the footage I got. I only got half of the footage that I wanted to tell the story. How the hell can I tell it? So a lot of sort of stylistic choices made in that scene uh, were, were, were due to the fact that we didn't have the footage. So it was a really, that, I'm glad that that became memorable because all I remember for the, three months editing it was that it was the most awful scene to edit because we just had nothing to kind of cut around. No, I, I felt the opposite. I really love that scene. <laughs> oh, great. Great. Oh, that's fantastic. No, I really like it too now, but it, um, it was such a, yeah, it was so different what, from, from what we imagined, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad it, you know, had, yeah, I'm glad it landed in a way for you. Yeah. And, and it does too, because you know, there's th that look on Orlando's face is I always go back to Fight Club. There's that part where Ed Edward Norton goes, we have just lost cabin pressure. And so, like, I, I always think of scenes in the movie where something happens to that character and they have, like, their world's turned upside down and that's, that's the we've lost cabin pressure moment. That's amazing. Um, yeah. But um, sort of funny question. So I've been to Australia before. I'm actually wearing an Australia T-shirt. That's where I did uh, – I went there for my honeymoon. Um, I did not see any flaming pancakes. Is that a delicacy that's from a bygone time? Is that, <laughs> did I just miss the memo on that? What's the deal with the flaming pancakes? Yeah, I got to know this too. <laughs> flaming. So, so do not get flaming pancakes in America. <laughs> nope, never. Never heard of it. <laughs> it's but a flaming mo, it is but not a flaming concept, pancake. Isn't it? Make a it stack really of pancakes is. and then put it on fire. <laughs> Um, does that, does that well, burn the calories a, before you eat them? <laughs> no, I think it comes from, look, I, I think, I think it comes from British cooking. I think it's kind of like, you know, making, making kind of like, you know, duck or orange and you kind of pour alcohol on it and flame it up. I think it was, you know, used as a sort of theatrical gesture in, in terms of serving food. And also I think the burning of the alcohol, the taste of the burnt alcohol on the pancakes is, supposed to kind of give flavor but yeah it was um it was a you can still do it like you can still go to sort of certain posh restaurants and there's things on flame everywhere you know <laughs> like the theatrics of it i think was a sort of big thing but i think in australia at the time 
you know, flaming pancakes were were an absolute indulgence, you know. Um, you know, look, you can have three pancakes and ice cream. You know, when in the world would you ever get to taste three pancakes and ice cream? And on top of that, I'm going to light it up. <laughs> you know, so it was, <laughs> I think there was, um, you know, I think it was a great day, actually, because I, I think when Russell kind of, the pancakes came out and Russell saw it, you know, he sort of smiled and laughed straight away. And I think we've all, you know, we've all had those experiences. The first, I mean, I never remember the first Chinese restaurant I went to in Australia, you know, the first exotic food I ever ate was a sort of Chinese restaurant up the road. And I remember the sizzling Sichuan beef coming out with flames all around it. And I, my whole life, I just couldn't believe that you could do that, you know? And I think there is that wonderment in the idea of kind of flaming pancakes and kind of what that means. But it, it's interesting. Like we, we had it in our youth, you know, probably not flaming pancakes, but the idea of like fire as a sort of theatrical event, you know, and a, and a sense of wonderment. You know, it, it looked like something straight out of a Wes Anderson movie, like when they served it. <laughs> and I thought like maybe craft services made flaming pancakes for the entire cast and crew that day. <laughs> right, no, they didn't. That was, um, no, it was just, it was just for that. They were really hard to make too. They were, um, it's hard to make kind of big fluffy pancakes like that and keep them alive. Well so the, the theatricality of the movie really speaks for itself. It reminded me in a way what uh, Nicholas Winding Refn tried to do with uh, Bronson. But uh, the one that sticks in my head is the troops approaching at night and they have these almost day glow yet at nighttime smocks that kind of looks like the beginning of uh, Richard Donard's Superman. So how, how did you get that shot? And what in your mind is probably the most theatrical or most standout in the film? Um... It was really interesting. Like I had the same, I had the same issue when I did Macbeth. In that, you know, we Macbeth at the end of the film is kind of faced with ten thousand soldiers. He actually says it in the verse. And when we went to sort of budget that film, you know, they said, "Well, you know, you can have fifteen. And 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 I was like, "How the <laughs> hell am I going to do this scene?" Like, you know, Michael Fassbender, like, with sword and everything, rushing towards 10 Englishmen, you know, in, in really bad chain mail, um, because that's what the budget is. And <clears throat> it was a really interesting lesson in, in kind of, like, we'll go back to point of view, you know, when you've got those big scale moments in a film, how do you, how do you achieve a sense of scale and ambition with them um, when you don't have any money to do it? And... On Macbeth, we we uh, decided then not to show the soldiers, and they were sort of shadows in the fire, and we weren't able to really simply sort of repeat them. So you you what you were sort of seeing really like the point of view of Macbeth. So when you suddenly go into the point of view of a character, and you're sort of suggesting to an audience you're seeing this through the like almost literally through the character's eyes, and what their feeling comes into that visual perception then it actually gives you the license to do, to, to do a lot and to, and to actually be a, a bit more impressionistic. And I, I, we couldn't do all those policemen for Glen Ron. We couldn't afford their uniforms. We couldn't kind of get them all there. So <clears throat> we started to talk about, you know, well, the whole world's closing down and it's, and it's kind of becoming this frenzied fever dream and Ned's looking out at Glen Rowan and we're literally looking out through his helmet at what he's seeing. You know, perhaps 
we can be much more sort of fevered and 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 kind of different about it. So <clears throat> we always sort of thought there was something interesting about the film becoming more electric, and we kind of love the idea of the film sort of pulsing. So the idea that these kind of police sort of become this sort of pulsing kind of presence within his imagination um, started to feel pretty interesting. And I guess we were all in this place at the time when we were making it, which is like, let's just go for it. You know, let's just try some new stuff. Let's really get into Ned's head and make the audience feel as claustrophobic and as kind of frenzied as he does. So that, that, a lot of that came out of budget. And then, and then usually when you've got problems like that, you start to come up with some really creative and possibly interesting solutions to, you know, how you're going to stage kind of big, big kind of moments. No, that's amazing. It's like the, what they say, art through adversity. So it's amazing you were able to do that with the limitations you had. So that's phenomenal. Yeah, I, I think, <clears throat> I mean, I always do it. You, you always have, there's always a moment where you're in pre-production is just the most awful period because you're continually killing your babies and you're, you're just trying to get to the start line with your castle intact. You know? And, and usually there's a moment where, you know, you've got the most ambitious sort of bit of your bit of your, your your screenplay that you're going to film and you you know you know that there's no way you're going to be able to film it for the money so point of view you know what is the character feeling and seeing like bringing the lens down to that and 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 if you've got a really great actor and, and you're really assured where you're putting the camera um look whether it works or not who knows but at least at at, at least you're being very um uh, at least you're not dicking around. At least you're actually having a go at, at really placing an audience um, where exactly where you want them to be, as opposed to just trying to kind of catch period or scale, you know. And and and, and I've noticed in the past, if I try to do that, it, it completely fails. Um, you've you've got to always sort of attack it through the point of view of the character. Right on. Um, is there anything up next for you, uh, Justin? And is there any certain genre or time period you want to tackle next that's tickled your fancy? Um, I've got a fantastic... I've, I'm desperate to do a comedy because I haven't done one. And I've got a dark comedy. And and uh, but I but I want to produce it for uh, my brother who Jed who does all my music and 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 that's a it's a film that <clears throat> we we wrote uh, or he wrote called Ivan Lendl Never Learned to Volley and it's kind of uh, essentially about an obsessed kind of Eastern European tennis parent and and uh, his sort of twelve year old prodigy son who sort of go on the run in Europe from the police after doing something kind of pretty terrible. And, and while they're on the run, they, they play junior tennis tournaments to keep their rankings up. So it's based on a true story. And uh, it's kind of based a little bit on our lives too. We had a little bit of a kind of Eastern European kind of tennis parent who had huge ambition for us to play Wimbledon and not, not uh, be on a movie set. So it's sort of a little biog, a little sort of based on a true story overseas and, pretty kind of funny um, and has a similar dynamic actually to kind of Harry Power and kind of little Ned. Awesome. Count me in for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I was kind of hoping that you'd say you would wanted to do a, a Tom Cruise biopic star Nicholas Holt. Cause there are certain <laughs> Man, times would, that yeah. uh, certain times he, I looked at it, I was like, he looks like a young Tom Cruise. Like, he could does, pull it doesn't off. he? Yeah, he does. Doesn't he? I mean, um, 
yeah, he, he's 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 very much like Tom. I'd love to do a Tom Cruise. He's one of my um, favorite actors, Tom Cruise. I just think he's his his commitment on screen is kind of second to none. So um, yeah, I'd, I'd 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 love to do something with him. Awesome. Well, well let us know. Yeah, let us know if that uh, the Harry Powers uh, miniseries comes off the ground because that also sounds amazing. If you can get that working. Yeah. Yeah, we'll be extras. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll come out to Australia. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the show today. We loved having you hearing about uh, the true history of the Kelly gang. Please go see this movie when it comes out. It is fantastic. Um, is there anywhere you want to tell the listeners out there to find you online, such as a social media account or YouTube or anything? No, I think, I think it'd be pretty available. Um, you know, uh, you know, streaming uh, VOD soon. So April twenty fourth, it comes out, and I think it'd be pretty easy to kind of uh, find it. It's going through IFC uh, Films. So yeah, have have a look at. it. I think everyone will be really surprised, and especially America's got such a love of westerns. You know, I think this is a this is this is essentially a western, but with a real kind of tweak. So I think um, people will be, you know, I think they'll have a real ride with it. No, for sure. I'm a fan of Westerns here, so I, and I loved it, and I really hope uh, the Criterion Collection picks this movie up and releases it this year, because that would be awesome. <laughs> 100%. Cool, man. All right, well, thank Thanks, you so much. Thanks, Josh. Nice to talk to you. Have a good one. Thanks, yeah. Justin.